Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 2nd, uh, 2022, a Friday. There are two major themes that we seem to come back to time and time again on this show, especially recently. It's the issue of leadership, of how to lead in corporations, politically, perhaps in life, and this perennial crisis of the American medical system, which is so complicated, so fraught, and so much in many ways, I think, a reflection of the problems with American life generally, American society is perhaps summed up by uh, Robert Pearl, very distinguished uh, medical doctor who's been on the show a couple of times. He has a book out, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. Um, Pearl paints a very miserable, a very dark picture of life on the front lines in hospitals in America. And when it comes to Leadership earlier this week uh, did a show with the former CEO of Medtronic, one of America's leading hardware medical companies, Bill George, who has a new book out, uh, True North Emerging Leader Edition, Leading Authentically in Today's Workplace. George now teaches at Harvard. Uh, we're bringing those together with my guest, Richard Winter. Uh, he has a new book out. It's called you're the leader. Now what? Leadership lessons from the Mayo Clinic, uh, which is one of America's top research hospitals. Uh, Richard is joining us from Rochester, Minnesota. Richard, welcome. Did I describe Mayo correctly? Is it a research hospital? How would you summarize it, Richard? Yeah, it's a combination of research, education, and clinical practice. And so it's really taking all that and putting it together. So uh, your new book, um, which focuses on leadership, is derived from your experiences as a leader, particularly, I think, at the Mayo Clinic. You're, the, you're a practicing emergency physician, and you're the director of leadership development for the Mayo Clinic Care Network. How, has what you've learned about leadership um, being in spite of the American medical system? Yeah. No, I think I, uh, probably because of the American medical system. Um, you know, you go into medicine because you want to take care of patients and, and take good care of uh, individuals and, and kind of add to the community. And then what you find is, is that as you're taking care of patients, that there are some barriers and you'd like to help get rid of those barriers. And so how do you do that? Well, you need to start to step into leadership roles and you need to start attending meetings. And so then as you're in meetings, you start to see how complex things are, um, how really difficult it is, and, and then try to figure out how you can be more effective in that sort of situation. And so really that's, that was, for me, the start of the whole leadership journey is like taking care of one patient at a time uh, at the bedside, which is very valuable and, and very fulfilling, um, or as a leader and on committees and meetings, kind of the, the, uh, you know, the bane of many of our uh, existences actually not taking care of single patients, but taking care of populations of patients and being, being able to have impact in that way. I don't want to turn this, Richard, into a conversation about the state of the American industry. We already did that, as I suggested, with Robert Pearl. 
But but what is your sense of, of where we're at in terms of the American medical system? Is it improving? Is it getting worse? Is it stuck? Um, probably yes to all, all three of those. And I think it depends on the areas that you're looking at. Um, but we're in a time of very difficult change. Uh, obviously, COVID is a good example of, of what's going on. Obviously, politics, um, the uh, what patients are seeking, the funds that are available, the amount that we, we charge, the procedures, all these sorts of things come together and create a very complex system. I think, though, overall, patient care is improving. Um, at the same time, there are, there are parts of the population that deserve much better care. Yeah, to put it mildly, we've also done many shows about the the way in which the American medical system consciously or otherwise discriminates against the poor uh, and particularly uh, African-Americans. So let's focus on the book. I like the title, Richard. Uh, You're the leader. Now what? Um, everyone loves to be the leader, but of course the challenge is actually leading. Uh, tell me more about the book. What, what was the goal? What's the purpose of writing this kind of book? Because there are so many books written on leadership. I'm not suggesting that you're not saying anything original, but it's mostly been said before. So where's the originality in this? Yeah, I mean, I've, it, so where does the book come from? It comes from being in those meetings and trying to find some efficacy there, trying to find ways to be able to help improve the care of patients and and finding that that was difficult, finding that I was doing things that weren't necessarily helping and in some ways alienating. And it's, I think, difficult as an emergency physician where I'm at the bedside of the patient and writing orders to going into a meeting and talking about very difficult issues and still kind of keeping that mindset. And so I think it, not only in medicine, but I think in organizations uh, all over the world, we have individuals who are experts. And, and as they step into these leadership roles, we tend to still kind of wear the hat of, of the expert and in which really uh, we know what to do at any given moment. Give me, you know, give me a problem and I can solve it for you. But th that really is not the way of, of being successful. And so somewhere in there, I found out that the way the physicians talked and the way that the hospital administrator, uh, administrators talked were, were different. And so I, I got an MBA um, and learned about finances and things like that. And as part of the MBA, I learned how to coach. Basically, I, I uh, had a class on coaching, and I always thought about coaching was um, talking about feelings and things like that. But what I found was a way of thinking about how I'm thinking and about how I can help others be more effective at thinking. And so as I started coaching individuals, executives, physicians, nursing, you know, uh, leaders, I started finding that they were having the same issues and there are these things that were coming up over and over again. And so, as you point out there, I mean, there are so many good things written about leadership. Um, but what I've tried to do in this book is basically show you how I put many of these different sorts of things together to actually make it kind of practical as you're sitting there in the meeting and, and your colleagues are upset and, and you're feeling flustered and you're wondering, you know, where do I go from here? How do I bring people together? Your book comes with, uh, after your name, the, the letters MD. Uh, I put that in your lower third too. Um, in terms of wearing this MD, um, Robert Pearl also has MD after his name. Is this something that you think doctors need to learn to live without, without their professional qualifications? Many of the conversations we've had about doctors and lawyers and engineers suggest that 
they fall back on those qualifications. And in many ways, having those qualifications, at least wearing them on their sleeve, doesn't necessarily benefit them. That's funny. I, I feel like you were in the conversations that I was having um, with um, with our publisher. And, and it was a good, I actually initially did not want the MD behind because I, I uh, it is part of my identity, but not all of my identity. And, and so actually a concern that I had is, as you put MD behind there, it automatically gives us perspective of, or perception that, well, this is a doctor and they're coming from on high and they're, they're going to kind of write orders like they do at the bedside. And I didn't uh, want that to be there. On the other hand, uh, being an MD and as I'm taking care of patients and particularly as an emergency physician, I'm taking care of people at all points of their life. I'm seeing parts of uh, our communities that others do not see. And I think that that does add to my perspective uh, as I write the book, I, I'm I'm not taking care of uh, those who are the haves. I'm taking care of those who are the haves and who have the have-nots, and those who are are under-recognized or not recognized at all. And I think all that comes together. We've also done a lot of shows about leadership and women. One with Susan Brady on seven ways for women to navigate leadership, and we did a show a couple of weeks ago with a young female doctor in New York, Anna DeForest, who's written a novel, A History of Present Illness, very interesting novel, very well reviewed, uh, in which uh, she talks about the maleness of the medical community and the way in which the very business of doctoring seems to be male. Would you agree with that? In terms of, particularly in terms of wearing the MDs and being authoritative and talking down. I'm not saying you do that, but there's a tendency within the industry. Yeah, I mean, I think that as you look at the world as a whole, and as certainly as you look at medicine, uh, medicine is a place of hierarchy where um, it's been very much male dominated. And those organizations that are going to survive and, and do best to take care of, of patients are going to be attracting not only people who look like me, but people who actually look like the community. And that means physicians who are women, people who are of different cultures, and then not only giving them positions, but also giving them a voice. I think that as you look at diversity in medicine, medical system, especially in the United States right now, I think we may start to see more hiring and we are seeing more hiring of, of women and, uh, and we're seeing more hiring for diversity I'm not sure the voice is necessarily there yet for those who are hired. I think uh, sometimes we're in meetings and it's still being run by necessarily like the loudest person in the room or the person who has power. And I think we have opportunities to open up the voices and to be able to hear the perspectives of those individuals that we've hired because they come from different backgrounds than ourselves. And, and we know that that's going to help us make better decisions. Richard, none of this sounds particularly original. I mean, everyone who comes on the show says the same thing. What are you saying in any way that's original in this book? Yeah, right. You thought, like, um, so what is original in this book? I think, I think the... I, I don't mean to sound rude, but oh. I've just heard it. Maybe it's because it's a Friday and I'm particularly impatient and, um, and intolerant, but I've heard it so many times before. Oh, we need... Women, we need African-Americans, we need younger people. But it's always articulated by white men mm -hmm. and nothing ever really seems to change. So, so what are you saying that's different from so many other management books? 
I think what you're I think you're pointing out something which is it has been said, but has it been put in practice? Has it are we actually changing the way that we're making decisions? And there are great books, and I'm happy to point people to, to I mean, really wonderful books that talk about how we can elevate the voices, um, but it needs to be put in practice. And, and I have to say, oftentimes within medicine, uh, where I'm at, what tends to happen is you have a physician who's really good at taking care of patients who is put into a leadership role, and they don't necessarily know. Yes, you know how to take a history and physical. You know how to write orders for the patient, but do you know how to facilitate large groups of individuals? Do you know how to step back from, for me, from my, from being the white guy um, who's, you know, in his fifties to, to, to be able to making decisions in the moment, to be able to help groups of people to, to come together. I, I don't think it needs it to be original thought. What I think needs to happen is things need to be put in action. And what I found as I'm coaching physician nurses and administrative leaders is that they may also want the same thing, but they actually don't know how to do it. And, and it takes actually looking at reading lots of different books, uh, you know, hearing lots of different perspectives, and then figuring out how to actually put this stuff into action. And, and I think that's been missing. I think that's missing in business education. I think that's missing in medical education. Um, and it's what's needed for us to be moving forward and not just hearing, you know, as you talked about having Bill George on before, I mean, this is this outstanding idea of culture, which is we can talk about our values, but our culture is actually our, our values embodied. It's reflected in our behaviors. And I think we're at this stage still, as we're talking about things, we may hold the values, but are we truly embodying behavior? My hope with this book is that I'm helping leaders embody these behaviors on the one hand, and then also helping those leaders at all levels who don't have those formal titles understand why you know, things aren't working. Why am I in this meeting again? Nothing seems to be happening. And the reason is, is because these values are not being embodied. The, the practice of how you make decisions isn't going the way that's most effective to, to encourage diversity of perspective and action. Well, then the book then is, as you say, it's, it's a practical guide to improving leadership skills. And you talk in the book about a number of different practices um, on best practices, delegate and develop, lead with a story, challenge its assumptions, cultivate diversity, create shared reality, decrease burnout, spark engagement, and so on and so forth. Uh, in terms of these bullets, uh, uh, Richard, is there one that you would lead with? If, if you only had 30 seconds to pitch this book, what would you argue what how, not selling the book itself but the practices what's the most important practice you're teaching in this book so let me so i think we all are aware of these times that we're in meetings and we hear people saying things and we come up with these like someone says something we know in the moment whether that's correct or incorrect and how reflexive we are reflexively we are as we make decisions and, and again we've read about this before and we've heard about this kind of type one type two sorts of decision making but still we're running meetings in that way. And so now imagine you're the leader of a bunch of individuals who are making decisions just like that. Just as they're going around the room, they're saying, nope, I disagree with winners or yes, I, I agree with them and they're moving on. So how do you in that moment step back and start to bring people together? How do you start to bring ideas together? And so I think number one is how do you step back from your expertise? How do you put down all the stuff that you know, all the stuff that have gotten you there and then start Take off to now, your MD. 
Yeah, take off your Literally MD. And figuratively. Take off your MD, take off your MBA, take off your position of power, and, and actually start to listen to the room. You've brought people there for a reason. If it's there to report out, send an email. If it's there to bring people together, let's talk. So show vulnerability. You had an interesting piece on... Um on burnout are people burnt out right now richard what's the best way to reinvigorate people yeah. who work for you and particularly and perhaps even yourself i'm i have to admit i'm rather skeptical of this idea of burnout i don't know why people are more or less burnt out today in early september 2022 than they were in 2020 perhaps yeah. your profession because you've been on the front lines fighting covid but, but for most of us if we're lucky enough to have a job. I don't know why burnout is any more or less pronounced today than it was five or 10 years ago. I think you bring up a good point, which is, did burnout exist in 1990? Yes, I'm sure it did. Did we have the language, language to describe it at that time? No, we probably didn't. And so was there research being done at that time that was pointing out that burnout existed? Yes, it did. And so it takes a little bit of time for you know, all these great ideas to start to come forward and for us to start to collectively have this language to describe exactly what we're feeling and what we're experiencing. And so I think we're there right now. And so how are, are we burned out right now? And so the recently released data, so for an emergency physician, I believe it's 79% of emergency physicians are burned out. I think we can step back and we can probably point out lots of reasons during a COVID, uh, you know, epidemic, pandemic, why this might be occurring, but, but they're burned out. That's, Burnout is one part of this. The other part of this is well-being. And so I think, do we focus on burnout or do we focus on well-being? And so what are the components of well-being? Well, it's a sense that where you're working is aligned with your sense of purpose, that with your values, with your, with your own mission. Is that happening or not? If it's not, you may be at risk to start to develop burnout. Do you sense that you're being heard? Do you have autonomy? Do you feel like your voice matters? If do not- we were overselling all this stuff, particularly um, Richard, the idea of meaning and living one's true life, especially for kids in the university or younger professionals, because, you know, you've, you've identified yourself as a senior professional in their 50s. Most of one's working life, most of one's career is a series of disappointments and frustrations. That's never going to change. Yeah. And uh, so I, when you said true life or real life, I kind of wonder, we can talk more about that. I'm happy to explore that. Well, go on. Um, I, I think that that as you're, you're talking about, and let's step back here and let's just talk about adult levels of development. And I don't know if you've uh, uh, run across Robert Keegan's work. Each of us, as we're going throughout our lives, um, we make sense of the world in different ways. And just as a kid, as it's born, starts to learn to, to crawl, starts to learn to sit up, starts to learn to stand, we as adults make sense of the world in different ways. And so some of us, as we start to make sense of the world, we make sense of the world based on the rules and whether we can get by uh, the rules and how we fit in with the rules. That's stage two. Or we start to def define ourselves based on the individuals that we're hanging around, we're socialized. And we start to see the way we make decisions based on an external compass how others who we identify with would make decisions. That's stage three. Stage four, we start moving into self-authoring where we make sense of the world. We start to see that, you know, I'm a male clinic physician, I'm an emergency physician, and I, I believe in this. These things aren't all coming together. So what I'm gonna to start to do is I'm gonna to start to self-author my own perspective. 
And then there's the fifth level, which is self-transforming, where we start to be able to step back and really view the world and ourselves as separate things. We start to see that actually there's multiple possibilities, there's multiple disagreements, and there's ways that we can move forward in each of these ways. As we're in our organizations, as we're with our colleagues, wonderful colleagues who we'd have for me take care of my parents, some of them are stage two. They're making sense of the world based on how they can make or break the rules and how they fit in. Some of them are making decisions based on the, the, the politics that they align with or the groups that they believe in. And some of them are starting to put together the world in different ways. As we're kind of making our true life, as we're trying to move forward, it is the struggles that we have as we're making sense of the world that's, that can help us define where we're going to go next. And if we can think through those struggles, then we can move on. If we can't think through those struggles, then we can stay stat, we can stay trapped. We can stay at that level three, where the way we're making sense of the world is based on our social groups and our cliques and things like that. But maybe that's uncomfortable. What about some really radical fixes to all this, Richard? You wrote an interesting piece in Fast Company uh, last month. Um, looking for a great leader, your current employees have recommendations. Maybe we should just do away with leadership. And meetings. Meetings seem to be so profoundly unproductive. Uh, one of the fortunate things about uh, being self-employed like myself is I never have to go to meetings. Yeah. And whenever I've been in organizations, there's such an incredible waste of time. Um, should we just flatten you. everything? Do away <laughs> with leadership? Do away with meetings? Create complete anarchy? Maybe that's the way forward. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I feel you. In it's, uh, you know, like, okay, I'm in meeting number 47. We had this meeting, same meeting. We talked about the same thing last year. Nothing happened. We talked about the same thing the year before. Nothing happened. Very, I mean, th these things like just drain you. It's I mean, so Bezos at uh, Amazon, who enjoys blowing stuff up, he banned meetings. And he certainly, I think, or, or uh, at least he aggressively attacked the meeting culture uh, and also aggressively attack memos, long memos, all this mm. kind of thing is just so counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, so let's let's step back. Is as you're moving forward, it should it just be a single individual making the decisions for all? Is that going to work well? And I think it's not. I think each individual has their own blind spots. And as we're facing this really complex world, I think the individual going well, going alone, it may be efficient, but is that the best for others? Probably not. And so how are we going to get individuals together, groups of people together to be able to discuss things and decide how to move forward? We don't have to call it meetings, however we do it, but it needs to be something. You point out a, a, like a very real thing, which is meetings these days tends to be just, okay, we have an hour now, let's, uh, let's go through this thing. And we're going to talk about six things, all of which are very complicated. We're going to tell you what we think, and you're going to sit there quietly and agree with us. And if you don't agree with us and you bring up your point, we're going to tell you why you're wrong and we're going to move on. Many, many meetings go like this. A thing that's been very helpful for me is, so a guy named David Snowden has a Kinevin framework, and I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. It's, it, yeah, so it's a, like, what kind of decision are we making? Some decisions are common sense, like we know what to do. All of us get together and we know what to do, and let's not spend time on this. Some decisions are complicated where actually what we need is an expert. For me, I can see a patient who's having a heart attack. I can diagnose it, but I call an expert, a cardiologist, to figure out now what to do with the patient. I'll call the finance people to decide on the financings. I'll call the marketing people, whatever. You know, you have some expertise. But with those decisions, those are things where we can understand 
kind of like the data input. We can understand what the possibilities of, of what's going to occur are going to, what's going to happen. Those tend not to be the things that are what we're discussing in meetings. What tends to be the things we discuss in meetings are things that are quite complex, where if we all get together, we probably would not even agree upon what we're going to consider as we're coming up to this kind of challenge. And as we work through the challenge, we wouldn't even all agree upon what are the possibilities of what can happen in this challenge. And so how do we get, I mean, and these challenges are, are the things that we're like, how, okay, we have COVID now. How are we gonna react? What are we gonna do as an organization? What policies are we gonna put in place to keep people safe? What are we gonna to do to, to help improve patient care? These are not things that you want decided by an individual. You need groups of people to work together to decide it. And so it's, it's really, I mean, I, I think whether you call it a meeting or whether you call it something else, somehow people need to get together, share perspectives first, share perspectives first, differences of opinion, disagreements, fears and worries, explore the diversity of all of our different perspectives first, and then decide what are the possible things we can do and then decide actually what we're going to do. But that's not what occurs. What occurs in meetings commonly is someone introduces a topic, it's on the agenda, and then they jump to options and way forward and they, they skip this whole process of actually bringing people together and leveraging the deep perspectives that we all have. It may take some time, but it's a lot less time than making dumb decisions based, you know, that lack the wisdom of the group. And so, I think there's ways of making decisions like this that don't have to have retreats that we can do in the moment, but it, it means that we have to bring things up and have a common language and work forward in a way that does that. As an ongoing debate, Richard, again, I'm sure you're very familiar with this in corporate America, the headlines about it every day about whether or not people should go back to the office as a leader, as someone who's just written a book about leadership. Do you think you can run organizations virtually or is it important for people to physically meet? Um, I think that all those possibilities are there. I mean, I think, yes, can organizations be you, run you're virtually? You're not answering me. You've got, you've got to say one way or the other. You can't keep on sitting on the fence here. No, actually, I don't agree with that. I think that there, this is not black and white. And I think that there are organizations that are hybrid. I think there are organizations that are that are virtual. And I think that there are organizations where people... Uh, need to meet. And I think that for me, if I want to be in an organization that's that I don't need to be in, in a, a meeting in a, in a, in a, like a setting where people are there, I'm going to find a place where I can work there. And I'm not limited to where I live. I can actually work. I, I'm in Rochester. You're in San Francisco. I can work a job in, in San Francisco. And those organizations that are able to attract people to work remotely, they're going to find people who are outstanding to work remotely. Those places that are requiring people to work in person I think they're going to struggle. I think it's going to be a struggle because the local is limited and there's such a world of opportunity out there and of individuals that you, you limit stuff. That being said, there are some things that you need people in person. And so I do, I think it is not black and white and I think it's up to the organization, but as an individual, I'm going to go to the place that fits me. I'm going to work where they're going to accept me and the way that I want to work. Well, finally, Richard, um, as you as I said earlier, you, you're the author of a new book. You're the leader. Now what? Leadership lessons from Mayo Clinic. Let's end with one leadership lesson specifically from the Mayo Clinic, something anecdotal that you experienced at Mayo, which is, which could be helpful for our viewers and listeners. Yeah, I think, I think let's talk about how we're approaching our colleagues. 
And I think there's five different hats that we can wear. And what commonly we do is we mentor colleagues. We talk to them based on our experience, where we've been, what we've done, and how we see their life and how we see what they might do moving forward. But there's a lot of opportunity for us to be able to, again, step back and to be able to help them make sense of their own world. And that's not mentoring, that's coaching. And so as we're coaching, we're helping identify when someone says this on one hand and they're saying this on the other hand and it doesn't make sense, how do you put these things together? That helps them. As we, as we start to help them kind of expand their RAM, make sense of the world in different ways themselves, it's gonna help them decide what to do. Because otherwise, if we're approaching them as mentors and as leaders, if we're approaching individuals, like we want them to work this way, it just doesn't work out in the long run. We have to be developing people where they're at and the way they want. Well, there you have it. Mentor, mentor, mentor uh, from Richard Winters, MD. You're the leader. Richard, what else are you reading these days to uh, make yourself wiser? Here we got David White, The Heart Aroused. Great book. Welsh poet. Writes about just the intersection between living uh, living a life and also being in an, in an organization and how you actually can be yourself and how do you pair the fears and worries you have with living a kind of a, a true life that's that's with you. That's one thing. And then the other one is Evolving Self by Robert Keegan. Um, if there is any like individual that's been so influential to me, never, you know, not not in person, but through books and things, Robert Keegan read any of his books and then you'll be very much enlightened and as you move forward.